This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 198. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. Each week, I bring you a piece of my fiction, available in audio for the first time anywhere. I'll also share my triumphs and struggles as a writing professional. More about that later in the show. For now, let's get to this week's story. Today I'm bringing you Chapter 56 of my Metamore City novel, The Lost and the Least. If you're new to the show, don't start here. Go back to Episode 143 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. After our heroes rescued Will from the Brotherhood, Callie, Michael, Lizzie, and Will went to District Attorney Schubert to obtain reinforcements to take down the cult. But one of the cops who Schubert called betrayed them, and the building was surrounded by Captain Shaw's Special Investigations Division. In order to buy time for Schubert and the others to escape, Michael Pirelli created a diversion. He put himself on a live video feed to the WorldNet and broadcast his own surrender. With reporters watching online and a baffled Lieutenant Jaguar in front of him, Michael explained the existence of the Brotherhood cult and how they had infiltrated the highest levels of imperial government. Jaguar, who apparently does not know that Captain Shaw is part of the cult, quickly came to the conclusion that the young detective has lost his mind. After escorting him past a mob of reporters, who had swiftly gathered in the apartment's lobby, she turned him over to his partner, Detective Horace Bentley, and his supervisor, Sergeant Hawkins. What will become of Michael after pulling this stunt remains to be seen. Meanwhile, back at the Brotherhood's secret base, the cult succeeded in opening a portal to the Shackled God. Jared was confronted by a dark, cloud-like entity, which reached inside his mind and dissected his memories in front of him. After seeing the things Jared has suffered, the loneliness, the pain, the loss, the betrayal, the Shackled God came to a decision. You understand, it told Jared. I too have known pain. I have known loss. I desire vengeance. We will do great things together, Jared Tamlin. You are the key. Then the entity reached through the veil between worlds, extending a shadowy pseudopod toward the terrified Jared. But before the shackled god could fill Jared with its power, Kate succeeded in diverting the flow of the ley line, channeling it into an arcane aqueduct built by Murakir. This cut the power to the Brotherhood's spell, and the door between worlds snapped shut, leaving Jared alone in the darkness. The Lost and the Least A Novel of Metamore City Written and read by Chris Lester
Chapter 56 Michael's face slammed into the wall of the police van again. Stars exploded across his vision. The taste of blood filled his mouth, and he spat, leaving a streak of red on the inside of the armored transport cell. Dazed, Michael felt his knees give way, and he sank to the floor of the van. The two uniformed officers lifted him under each arm and placed his head on the thin steel bench that ran the length of the cell. One of the officers put a knee into his back and bore down, pinning his jaw shut and bending his neck painfully backward. Over on the far side of the van, Detective Bentley clucked his tongue. I tried to warn you, kid. You get flashy, you make the news, you make enemies. Do yourself a favor and don't make this worse. Michael wasn't in much shape to keep fighting the arresting officers, even if he wanted to. His head spun, his hands had been recuffed behind his back, and the uniform behind him could probably snap his neck with only a moment's effort. He let his body go limp, submitting to the officer's control. After a moment, they picked him up again, turned him around, and strapped him into one of the restraint harnesses that lined the bench. Michael focused on calming his breathing and waiting for the world to stop spinning. The interrogation in the security office had not gone as well as Michael might have hoped. He had patiently explained to Detective Bentley and Sergeant Hawkins what he had learned about the Brotherhood, the kidnappings and murders they had perpetrated over the last few months, and the little he knew about their long-term objectives. He explained what they had learned from Will about Dr. Jared Tamlin, though he did not give them the boy's name. He described the site of the cult's ritual— and how Kate, Morgan, and the immortal known as Murakir needed immediate backup to stop the cultists from escaping. Then, because he was dealing with police detectives, he had to explain it again. Four more times. Unfortunately, Sergeant Hawkins showed far less interest in any of those things than in the swarm of reporters surrounding the building. It was rare for police to cordon off an entire tower— so that alone was enough to get the press asking questions. The rapid spread of Michael's video across the world net had been like pouring accelerant on a fire. Once the reporters started pounding on the doors and demanding to know Michael's status, Hawkins had summoned the transport van from Precinct 9 so he could be spirited out of the building unseen. The men who had just finished beating the stuffing out of Michael were two of Hawkins' trusted cronies. Michael had never liked them, and now his throbbing head had confirmed his suspicions about them. To men like that, the blue wall of silence was everything. A cop's first responsibility was to protect his brothers and sisters on the force, no matter what they might have done. Michael, who had just accused a huge swath of the force of being criminals and murderers, was the worst sort of traitor in their eyes. They had made sure to remind him of that, forcefully, whenever he did anything they could construe as resisting arrest. The van powered up its lift turbines and began to move. Michael couldn't see where they were going, but he assumed the van would pass out of the garage, through the police cordon, and then start heading southeast toward Precinct 9. Michael eyed his captors carefully. 
The two uniforms were now strapped into their spots on the opposite bench, their eyes hard, their expressions a mask of quiet hostility. Their hands hovered close to the handles of their stunners, in case Michael decided to try something stupid. Or more stupid. Bentley, by contrast, was nursing a cup of service station coffee, his eyes looking red-rimmed and sunken in his huge rhinoceros head. He squinted across the van at Michael. Michael knew his partner's eyesight wasn't very good, and in the dim light of the transport cell, he probably resembled a fuzzy blob. "'Where's Hawkins?' Michael asked him. The old detective was silent a moment before answering. "'Went ahead of us to the station. He'll be getting things set up.' "'What things?' Bentley sighed. "'Look, kid,' You've become a liability. Normally, when a cop fucks up, the brass will give him their walking papers and send him out the back door, real quiet. Nobody likes to make the team look bad, get me? He took a long drink from his coffee. But you had to get the press involved. Worse, you said that the whole department was infested with some kind of crazy conspiracy. Now that's not something they can just let go. It's not enough to just fire you. Now they have to destroy you. They've got to discredit you so completely that nobody's going to believe a damned word you say. Bentley's words were like a knife twisting in Michael's gut. And, some detached part of his mind noted, they were also a strange thing to say out loud. Why is he telling me this? Even if Bentley thought they could get away with what they were doing to Michael, why risk admitting to it? especially in front of witnesses. Of course, maybe Bentley knew the brass would have his back, and there was no reason to hide. Maybe he thought Michael would go along with it all quietly, if he knew how fucked he actually was. Michael was sure Sergeant Hawkins, at least, would like nothing better than to hang him out to dry. But Hawkins didn't run the precinct, either. Captain Montgomery knows all about the Brotherhood, Michael said. He provided us with key information about their activities. So you say, Bentley said. But Montgomery's been on the force longer than you've been alive, kid, and he's never said shit about this to anyone. Anyway, it'll be the LT who gets rid of you, not the Cap. You know he and Hawkins are tight. Michael grimaced. So how are they going to do it? How do they plan to discredit me? Bentley snorted. Hawkins doesn't exactly tell me his plans, kid. But he did tell me to bring you down to the showers when we get there. I'm betting he's gotten his hands on some untagged evidence out of narcotics, and they're going to plant it in your locker. You'll go down for five or ten years for possession with intent to distribute. He paused, then looked meaningfully aside at the two uniformed cops. By the time you get out, everybody will forgotten about you. Michael followed Bentley's cue and watched the faces of the two uniforms. One of them narrowed his eyes at Michael, and a cold, cruel smile touched the corners of his mouth. Michael felt a chill that had nothing to do with the cold slab of metal he was sitting on. I won't get out at all, he realized. This isn't just about the blue wall. They're with the cult. They'll make sure I have an accident or commit suicide, just like Stanley and Khaled. Bentley sighed, 
and slumped a little lower in his seat. I'm sorry it turned out this way, kid. I liked working with you. You were good police. But you never knew when to walk away. Hearing his partner speaking of him in the past tense was more frightening than anything the two uniforms had done to him. Well, Pirelli, you knew you were risking your career when you agreed to help on this case. Granted, he hadn't known then that he would be facing a thousand-year-old apocalypse cult with its claws in the highest levels of the imperial government. If he had... He sighed. If you had, you wouldn't have done anything different. He tried to take comfort from the fact that his allies were already on their way to shut down the cult's operations, hopefully for good. He just hoped he would live long enough to see it. The door to the chamber opened, and a burst of dazzling light struck Jared full in the face. He turned away from it, cursing under his breath, as half a dozen people in cultists' robes rushed into the room. One of the cultists grabbed Jared's head, quickly checking his eyes, his breathing, and the pulse in his neck. Jared was still sucking in air around his gag, trying not to hyperventilate at the horror of what he had just seen. He's alive, the cultist said. Behind him, Shaw stepped out of the glare and stood before Jared, their face veiled in shadow. Good. Release him. Quickly, the cultist produced a key and removed Jared's restraints. All around them, the other members of the cult were cleaning up the residue from the ritual, sweeping everything into heavy-duty trash bags. One of the cultists had unrolled a scroll and was reading through it, silently mouthing the words that would trigger the spell within. Jared got to his feet and faced Shaw. He tried to untie his gag, but his hands were shaking, and finally the other cultist reached up to help him. The strip of foul cloth fell to the floor, and for a long moment Jared just stood there, spitting and retching. Shaw stepped in close to him. Compose yourself, doctor, they said softly. There was none of the condescending sneer he had heard in their voice before. You must be strong before our brothers. Jared spat one last time, then looked up at Shaw in revulsion. I guess I passed your tests, then? Shaw grimaced, but the androgyne gave him a firm nod. You did. Now come. Jared briefly entertained the thought of wrapping his hands around Shaw's neck and choking the life out of them, but that was foolishness. He wasn't a fighter and he was still too weak and exhausted to think of doing anything so violent. In any case, Shaw turned and walked out of the room, and no one laid a hand on Jared to force him to follow. He did so anyway. They passed quickly through the narrow passages and chambers, back down to the tunnels that had brought them here. Two of the cultists followed behind Jared, while the others stayed to help with erasing the evidence. So I'm free to go? Jared asked, as they continued their descent. You are, Shaw said. The ritual was interrupted, so you do not yet have the power that rightfully belongs to the vessel. But you have seen the face of the shackled god and lived. There is no doubt he has chosen you. Jared shuddered again at the memory of it. Your god is a monster. 
If you had seen what I saw, you'd leave him in that prison where he belongs. Jared thought that would make Shaw angry, but the androgyne did not rise to the bait. The world is a broken place. We are far from what our creator meant us to be. Perhaps it is no surprise that he frightens us, but it is not the clay's place to judge the potter. Inwardly, Jared wondered at the depth of Shaw's devotion. What made you this way? Why are you so convinced this is the god you're supposed to worship? Fine, don't say I didn't warn you. What's the fastest way out of here? Shaw pointed over their shoulder at a spot behind Jared. The fastest would be that last set of stairs we passed, but I don't recommend going that way. Our enemy knows we are here. Somehow he disrupted the ritual. He will be coming for us. What enemy? Jared asked. Does she know about Katane diverting the ley line? Murakir Kunis, Shaw said, with clear loathing in their voice. He is an immortal, and the centuries have driven him mad. If he finds you, he will kill you. Jared felt a fresh wave of fear. To have gone through all this and then be killed anyway? How do you know? he asked. Because he has done it before, Shaw said, sounding exasperated. Every potential vessel he finds, he kills. Now that you are confirmed as the vessel in truth, he will be doubly resolved to destroy you. Go where you wish, doctor. It is not my place to stop you. But I promise you this. He will never stop haunting you. Jared knew, even as Shaw said it, that this was probably a lie. Another attempt to control him. Keep me isolated. Keep me afraid. Let me think the Brotherhood are the only ones who will help me. But what if the androgyne was telling the truth? Jared didn't know that much about the Immortals. He'd never heard of this Murakir Kunis. But he did know that all the Immortals were powerful and resourceful. If there was an Immortal trying to hunt down the Brotherhood and anyone associated with them, then Shaw was right to be afraid. But would he see me as a victim of the Brotherhood? Someone to help? Or as a tool they might try to use? Jared had no intention of being used, by Shaw or the Brotherhood or anyone else. He wanted the same thing he had always wanted, a quiet, peaceful life with someone who loved him. But an immortal might not understand that. The sort of people who wanted that life did not become immortals. He made his decision. The risk of being found here was too great. If Shaw was right, and this immortal wanted to kill Jared for being the vessel, then Jared needed allies he could trust. He needed a safe harbor that wasn't being provided by a deranged apocalypse cult. Fortunately, Jared knew where to find one. All right, he said. Show me how to get out of here. Consciousness returned to Kate slowly. First, the sound of rushing water. Then, the sensations of cold and wetness. Then, the musty scent of the underground river. Her chest spasmed, and she coughed up foul-tasting water. She turned over on her side, dug her fingers into stones slick with algae, 
and retched, spilling more water onto her already soaked hands. She moved her left hand a few centimeters outward, trying to steady herself. Her hand slipped off the edge of the rocks and sank into the rushing river. Kate scrabbled on the wet stones for a few terrifying seconds, but she managed to avoid falling in. What happened? Once again, her usually infallible memory seemed to have failed her, but this time she didn't think alcohol was to blame. Dreamlike images swam through her brain, of a hole between worlds, of a man gagged and bound to a heavy chair, of a dark and angry something that churned against a purple-black sky. She vaguely recalled the sense of mana flowing through her, on a scale she could not comprehend, and her mind screaming with the effort to control it. Every nerve ending jangled and scraped at her awareness, like she had a full-body sunburn combined with frostbite, combined with a road rash. She groaned. Catherine. A voice in the darkness, calm, controlled, and male. David? She said, disoriented. She tried to sit up, and her head swam. Catherine, you need to get up. The voice was closer now, and Kate heard the click, click, click of claws on stone. She turned in the direction of the sound, and now she could just barely make out a figure approaching, a deeper darkness against the surrounding gloom. Three small lights burned in that darkness, over the spot where the left eye should be. He walked swiftly along the narrow ledge of stone between the river and the curving wall, his steps as sure and steady as if he were walking on dry pavement. Behind him, a neat circular hole opened in the ceiling, the dim lights of the repair shop beyond it. Kate thought she recognized the voice now. Murk here? The figure leaned over her, and she caught the familiar skunk scent of the man leaking out beneath his suppression amulet. A furry, clawed hand gripped her own, then began helping her to her feet. She stood before him, swaying, her 180-centimeter frame towering over his much shorter form. He peered up at her, his skunk eye glinting a faint green in the dim light. The three gems on his eye patch were glowing visibly, each in a different color. What's happening? she asked, slurring her words. You diverted the ley line, Murakir said. He was doing something with his aura sight. The fingers of one hand splayed a few centimeters in front of her body. The Brotherhood's spell has been disrupted. Now we must strike, before the rats can scurry back to the shadows. Kate stared at him. Strike? She held up her hands in front of her face. She could dimly see them now, and they were clearly shaking. I'm not even sure I can walk. Yes, you taxed your body considerably, Murakir agreed, blandly, as though he were commenting on the weather. I warned you that you were working too hard. Hold still. Before Kate could protest, Murray placed his hand against her solar plexus over the Amala that contained her stored mana. He spoke softly and rapidly, in a clipped staccato language. 
it sounded to Kate like one of the Luton tongues. A strange, tingling sensation started in Kate's stomach. Still speaking, Murakir knelt and took a handful of water from the river. He held the cupped water to his mouth, blew on it, then reached up and smeared it over Kate's forehead, like an ecclesiast priest baptizing an infant. Instantly, Kate felt a rush of energy flowing into her, not raw mana, but something more complex, more vital. It felt a little like when she had carried the rift spirits back to Telvar, like she was not quite alone in her own body. Whatever it was, it gave her strength, and the tortured feeling in her nerves subsided. The river spirits have agreed to help you, Murakir said. They do not like what the Brotherhood has done to the mana here. As he spoke, Kate felt a rush of emotions that were not her own, a sense of indignant outrage, of having been violated. She did not think the river spirits could speak, or form thoughts in ways that her brain could comprehend, but Kate understood the emotions well enough. What's our status? she asked, her voice steady now. Any sign of our reinforcements? Not yet. And if we wait for them, the Brotherhood will escape. We must act now. Kate nodded sharply. Where's Morgan and John? Unknown, Murakir said. Worry twisted in Kate's gut. She'd expected them to be back by now. All right. Kate took out her Arthana and experimentally channeled some mana into the blade. The ceremonial dagger lit up with a blue-green glow, the same color as her aura. The mana flowed easily, with no sign of Kate's earlier headache. I'll go in and look for them, see what kind of numbers the bad guys have. We can't risk a head-on fight until backup gets here, but we can make it harder for them to get away. What are the chances they might try to break our channel and restart the ley line? Murakir's ears flicked back, and his whiskers flared. Doubtful. Their ritual has already been disrupted. They won't have time to recreate it, and I doubt they have enough stored mana to try. Okay, so we won't worry about trying to guard it. She imagined the layout of the underground chambers and tunnels, as she had seen them in Silas's map. There are at least four ways out of that place. Think you can close off some of the exits? Murakir flashed a predator's smile. With pleasure. And that's the end of Chapter 56. Come back next time when John and Morgan venture into the Brotherhood's lair, and Michael faces the trap set for him by Sergeant Hawkins. Caroline Gordon said, A well-composed book is a magic carpet on which we are wafted to a world that we cannot enter in any other way. So, let me share a whole new world with you. It's time for the Weekly Writing Report. I wrote 2,627 words this week, over the course of four hours, for an average writing speed of 657 words per hour. As of Friday night, I have gone 315 days without breaking my chain. This week I continued working on All the World of Fire, though I wasn't able to make as much progress as I had hoped. The day job wasn't as hectic as last week, 
but it always takes me a while to get back into the rhythm of doing evening writing sessions while Mel is away. And having one fewer person in the house means there's one fewer person to help with the housework. I'm looking forward to making a more serious push this weekend. The story is now in Chapter 9, and the manuscript is up to nearly 23,000 words. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255-082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And my Mastodon handle is at author Chris Lester at wandering.shop. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review in Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fiction, fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2018 and 2019 by Chris Lester and the Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.